Go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Um, we're going to continue talking about Matthew chapter 1. Um, last week we began considering, uh, considering our Advent time together. Um, we have a few extra days in Advent because Christmas falls on a Sunday this, this year. And so um, one thing that we want to consider um, is, uh, is this passage leading up to, leading up to Christmas. We're thinking about Matthew chapter 1, primarily uh, Primarily this morning will be in verses 18 through 25, but last week we kind of considered the, the, the genealogy of Jesus and, and what that looks like and the implications of the genealogy of Jesus. And uh, sometimes that genealogy is something that we sort of we kind of plow through and sometimes we just look at it as a list of names and not a whole lot more, and yet it's communicating some very specific truths to us. And so last week uh, when we looked at the genealogy, we talked a lot about uh, Jesus' kingship, um, and, and his line then, and, and then we saw sort of in this genealogy a lot of dysfunction, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, sort of disaster that had taken place in the course of some of these names and the lives of some of these people, including probably the greatest name there in David. Matthew goes out of his way to point out the fact that, that Solomon was, was the, 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 son of, um, but the son of Bathsheba, um, who was uh, the wife of Uriah, um, and, and David had committed some significant sin, obviously in, uh, in, in, in taking Uriah's wife, but then also in, in, uh, in seeing to Uriah's death. And we have this list, this strange list. And so when Matthew's original readers, who would have been Jewish, looked at this list, they would have thought to themselves, what, why, are, why is he including some of these names? Um, is this the line from which the king who is to rule the earth is going to come? Um, and when they were looking for this political and sort of... Um, this, uh, this political restoration in Israel, um, their, their thoughts would quickly be reoriented when reading this list. And maybe some of them thought to themselves, hey, this could be a mistake. This is just a mistake, this list. I don't, I don't know why he included this, but, but moving forward, um, we're going to assume that, that, uh, that, that some kind of political restoration was coming. And yet, um, when we get to verses 18 through 25 in chapter 1, we sort of have more of the same. I think it's important to note as we look this morning, we're going to consider sort of the virgin birth in general um, this morning, but, but, but sort of as we consider this passage, and, and the biblical narrative as a whole, um, there's a lot of things that sort of cut against our human logic. When we start to, to apply human logic, sometimes the Bible just doesn't make sense. Sometimes the Bible doesn't make sense. Now, logic is obviously a faculty that we've been given. It's important to employ it regularly. Don't go out here and and think that what I'm telling you is logic is, is, not, is not good. It's something that God has given to us. And yet, God, God intends to demonstrate to us our limitations regularly. God intends to, to show us that we are weak vessels. We are not capable of doing much on our own. I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm awake for 16 to 18 hours, and then i got to sleep. I've got to sleep. I don't know. Some people require less sleep than me. But, but sleep is something that we require and is something that, that demonstrates our limitations as, as human beings. We're eating, I don't know, or drinking water. Like, we have to do these things regularly to be sustained and to survive. If our bodies lack oxygen, we pass out and we die. Like, we have to, we, there are so many things in our world that exist around us that, that, that sustain us, but are yet are outside of our control. They exist to demonstrate our limitations. There is nothing that exists outside of God 
There is nothing that, that God requires regularly outside of himself to be sustained. Um, and this is the truth of, of Scripture as we see and we start to think about these, these logic uh, arguments that, are, that sort of begin to crop up in our minds. We say, yeah, but what about... And then we think to ourselves, well, then this couldn't be true. And yet, God is demonstrating something very significant to us as we consider the biblical narrative, as we consider um, our, how, uh, how our own logic regularly breaks down. So this morning, when we get to verse 18, when we look through verse 25, we're going to kind of focus on a few verses early in this passage. When we get here, um, we see um, the limits of our understanding sort of becoming really apparent. And when we talked about Jesus' kingship last week, um, we, we realized that his lineage was, was sort of dripping with this devastation, dripping with this dysfunction. Um, and, and when we thought about how countercultural that became, all of a sudden our, our logic began to break down. Or at least uh, the original readers, their logic began to break down when I thought about this. This isn't a political or earthly powerful by any worldly standards. What we're going to see here in verses 18 through 25 and it cuts against the grain of our human understanding and our logic. And in order to sort of see this Christmas narrative, we need to recognize, and we need to recognize that Jesus' divine nature um, is something that is, is clearly, uh, clearly demonstrated to us in verses 18 through 25, but, but, um, but, but we tend to compartmentalize these things. So Matthew certainly doesn't because of the genealogy and then into the remainder of, of chapter 1. We'll see that apparently uh, become more apparent as we look at this. But, but I think sometimes our nativity scenes, they compartmentalize, right? We, we see a baby in a manger and not a, not a king ruling over all creation. We see some precious moments instead of, uh, instead of, instead of a, a, a God who created the entire world. And everything, it sustains everything. So when we look at Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus in, in 18 through 25, we're forced to think then about the virgin birth that he speaks of here, and why it matters. Um, sort of in our modern day, a lot of people, especially within the last hundred years, have questioned the le legitimacy of the virgin birth and why it's necessary. Like, why it would be necessary. Um, and why does it matter? Why is it something that does matter for us? I think primarily it adds truth, or it, it gives us a, a, a picture of the truth of Scripture in a very real way. You can't look at Matthew, verse, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and think to yourselves, that, well, the virgin birth is something that was made up, and then take the rest of the Bible and believe it to be inerrant, the inerrant word of God. You can't do that. This is something that doesn't make sense. It cuts against our own logic, our own reasoning ability, and yet it, it creates this, this sort of vacuum where if we say, this is not real, this is just a myth, this is something that didn't, um, Matthew records it as historical fact. And so we need to take it, we need to consider. So that's sort of what's in jeopardy as we consider this text this morning. What do we believe to be true about Scripture? Is it the inerrant word of God? Or is it something that we're going to pick and choose and cherry pick out of? The latter is very, very dangerous for us. So, this morning then, let me read this text for us. And I'm going to give you a big idea. And we're going to start talking a little bit about what the virgin birth primarily means for us. And why we should consider it and some implications sprinkled throughout here this morning. So, let's read this together. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which she conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and she called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again for your word. God, we thank you for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on it. And we as a people come together and we, we desire to know you through your word. And that is the primary means by which you communicate the truth about who you are to us. Lord God, so we exalt you. Lord, we recognize that, that this, this account is, is true. It was inspired by the Spirit of Christ. Lord God, so as we consider the implications of this this morning on our life, Lord, I pray that you would shape us, God, that you would transform us. And we thank you for these truths, God. We thank you. We thank you for our limitations. And we thank you that our limitations drive us to a place where we understand our need for you. Oh God, so shape us, change us, make us more like Jesus in this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Okay, so this morning then, big idea as we look at the virgin birth, and primarily we see in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way, but his mother had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she, had been found, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit, and then we see in verse 23 then, uh, Matthew actually quoting the Old Testament and saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So Matthew makes it pretty clear here that the virgin birth is in play. Um, and then verse 24, um, when, when Joseph wakes from his sleep, he does the angel of the Lord commanded, he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. So this morning, the big idea then coming out of this text is that Matthew's account of the virgin birth gives us a robust picture of Jesus' complete divinity and his complete humanity. Matthew's account of the virgin birth gives us a robust picture of Jesus' complete divinity and complete humanity. And so when we're thinking about the way that, that we process through um, the, the, the things that we logic and sometimes begin to cut against it, we see that probably standing at the very forefront of it is that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. There was, there was, he was completely man and completely God. And that's what the virgin birth is intended to communicate to us. God created this life in the womb of Mary and, and placed, him, placed Jesus there in order, that, in order that we might see his complete divinity and his complete humanity. Begotten, not made. 
So, the forecast this morning, as we look ahead to what we're going to be considering, we're, both, we're going to consider Jesus' humanity first, and we're going to consider his divinity, and then, we're going to sp- and then we're going to sort of sprinkle in some implications as we consider this text together this morning. So the first thing this morning, then, is, is Jesus' humanity. So we see here um, that, that, that Jesus was conceived um, by the Holy Spirit, Right? When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Mary carried him like any biological mother carries her child, right? There's no distinction here. She carries him from the point of conception to the point of birth. And so we clearly see in this that Jesus is fully human. He took on human flesh. And this is called the incarnation. Jesus taking on human flesh. The one who created all things that was there at the very foundation of the earth took on human flesh and was what became human in that moment. So the question is, if we sort of look at this text, why, why didn't God just like send a fully formed man to earth? So, um, and, and I mean, that, that's, that's kind of where my mind goes. I sort of think about that. Like, well, why didn't he just send a conquering king to come and, and to, to do what he intended to do here, here on earth? So, I don't, maybe some of you will understand this, but you just picture this. Um, you see this yellow garbage truck, and you see this lightning. You don't know where I'm going with this? The, 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 uh, the, uh, I heard it. The garbage truck driver hops out. He's scared. He hops out of the, the garbage truck. He runs away. There's all this smoke and this fog. And this man, like, stands up. He's crouched down and he stands up. That's how Terminator came to earth. That's not how Jesus came to earth. Terminator was a cyborg, right? He's like this robot human man who took on, like, this flesh stuff. But, and obviously Terminator is, is, is fictional. He's a fictional character in a fictional movie. So the metaphor doesn't walk on all legs. Well, Matthew wants to see us to see that that's not the way that God chose to send Jesus. He chose to send him to be conceived, to be carried by a mother, in order that we might see and clearly perceive his complete humanity. If he came to earth as a fully formed man, his humanity would not be clearly perceived. But Jesus is fully man. So Matthew wants us to see here that Jesus is fully man. So the question coming out of that is, why is that so important? Why is it so important that we see Jesus as fully man? Um, One, um, it points us to the importance of and raises the, the, the understanding of Jesus' sinlessness, right? It points us to the importance of Jesus' sinlessness. Jesus lived this complete human life, right? He lived a total, complete human life, and yet he did so with all of the handicaps that we have. Those limitations, that sleep, that need to eat, all those things that we talked about at the outset, this finite mind, these emotions, and yet he did not sin. Scripture tells us this very, very clearly. 
And this is like none of us. It's like us in our humanity and yet unlike us in his, in his, um, in his sinlessness. So personally, I think about this and I think to myself, my, my weakness regularly, it drives me to sin, right? My weakness drives me to sin. I get tired and start to think about myself above, the, above, above others. And I fail to love my wife. I fail to speak the truths of the gospel to my kid. I begin to find joy in, my, in things other than in Jesus. I begin to believe that I can find satisfaction in other things, in, in, in money, in my work, in my intellect, in, in uh, you name it, any of these things. And I frequently allow my emotions to dictate how I respond in any given situation. But if Jesus isn't fully man, then what the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 4 doesn't really mean anything for us. The author of, of, of Hebrews in, in chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, writes this. For do not have a high priest, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If Jesus is fully man and has been tempted in every way that we have, yet is without sin, then the result is our ability to draw near to God. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying there. We have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the help of time of need. If Jesus isn't fully man, then that is not possible. Ask myself this question coming out of this passage. Why do you trust Jesus? Why do I trust Jesus? Why? Maybe you've asked that question. Is it because you are sinful and you recognize that sin and you want to be washed clean of that? You've got to get that problem rectified. That's, that's great, but that's, that's not the whole picture. That's great, but that's not the whole picture. We as a people are deformed, right? God created us to have relationship with Him. God created us to find joy, to bring Him glory, to joyfully obey all that He commands us. What we're created for is misshapen by this sin. This isn't just a get clean and move on type of situation. This isn't just a get clean and, and, and live your life the way that you want to live it. So we've got to stop thinking about the gospel and just getting washed up and then moving past it. By thinking that, you diminish the work of Jesus. You are created for something more. You are created for something more. We don't want to make a mockery of Christ's work because we think it's just about getting clean. It's far more than that. We were created to draw near to God, like the author of Hebrews writes. We were created to approach the throne of grace with confidence. But because of sin, that was broken. Our sin prevents us from doing that. Jesus' work makes it possible. 
His humanity points us to that. Since Jesus is fully man and lived a completely sinless life, the relationship with God that you were created for is now possible. It is impossible through human striving alone. Despite our sinfulness, the work of Jesus and His full humanity now makes it possible for us to draw near to the throne of grace and to receive the mercy find grace and help in the time of need. So the virgin birth then proclaims the gospel in Jesus' humanity. It proclaims the truth of the gospel in Jesus' humanity. It says, here is one who came about in the same way that you came out about and yet without sin. Who is a spotless lamb of God sacrificed on our behalf so that we might be clean, but so that we might achieve, be able to have to accomplish the purpose that we were given to bring God glory, to obey all that He commands to us. So what about fully God? If if Jesus' humanity proclaims the, the gospel to us by demonstrating Jesus' likeness to us, and yet his, 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 his difference from us in that he was completely sinless, what about what it means that he's fully God? The fact that Mary was with child and the Holy Spirit created that life within her is, is divine intervention. It is supernatural. It is a supernatural act, Right? And this points us then to Jesus' deity. Later, Matthew reminds us what Isaiah prophesied again in in verse 23, that Jesus would be called Emmanuel, or God with us, right? Jesus' deity is perceived in Mary conceiving by the Holy Spirit. So we have this supernatural element to Jesus' conception. And the New Testament authors um, recognize that Jesus was fully God, right? Paul writes to the Colossians that uh, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And John records, these are a couple of many instances, John records Jesus' assertion of his own deity when he says, Before Abraham was, I am. When we consider this, why is Jesus' deity important to us? In some ways, that question seems a little, little silly, but it's important to us in this text with the way that Matthew unpacks it for us. Jesus came to bear the sin of the world, and a mere man could not do that, right? Jesus' deity is important to us because Jesus came to bear the sin of the world, and a mere man could not take that upon himself. Scripture tells us time and time again over the course of this entire volume that that salvation comes from God alone. It doesn't come from a man. It comes from God alone. It's constantly pointing us to our limits and our need. Our own inability to save ourselves. 
It's pointing us to the fact that salvation cannot come from anyone or anywhere but God. Right? It cannot come from anyone or anywhere but God. And Jesus' revelation of himself is affirmed in his full deity, in his complete, uh, complete likeness with God. And if Jesus then is the mediator between God and man, which, which we know that he is, Jesus being fully man can intercede on our behalf before, uh, intercede before God on our behalf. And Jesus can, being fully God, can intercede before God. And if one of those two things isn't true, he's not fully God, he's not fully man, that intercession cannot happen. It breaks down breaks down. Jesus is not fully God and fully man. Every one of us here should get up and walk out. There is no hope, there is no confidence to draw near to the throne of grace if Jesus is not fully God and fully man. We're thinking about this, okay, so, so, so this is kind of like this high-minded theological idea. Fully God, fully man, what does this mean? Matthew is communicating this to us as we consider the virgin birth, but what does it mean for us on a daily basis then? What does this mean for us? What are the implications? So what? So what? So, so when we come to this, okay, so um, we talk about the virgin birth when it gets to Christmas time, but we rarely ever, uh, uh, any other time of year, consider it, right? We sort of just gloss over it like, oh, whatever. It's just something that's in there. Great. But, but as we look at the virgin birth, we see that God's goodness is apparent in taking on human flesh and becoming fully human. If what we said is true about Jesus as the mediator, as being able to mediate on behalf of men, it is God's goodness to us that, that Jesus took on human flesh and was fully human. If we reflect on the fact that Jesus is fully God, and then he, that means he is completely capable of addressing your sin need, right? The need that you need, that you need that you have for sin to be removed from you is addressed in the fact that God or Jesus is fully God. And so, as we look at this, and we sort of begin to think about it, we get to the end of the book, the book of Matthew, and we think to ourselves, okay, so we have the, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and all those things are given to us at the end of the book of Matthew. But when we look at the birth narrative, we, we rarely think about the truths of the gospel that are contained here within it. And so, Christmas then, as we move towards December 25th, when we mark that day on our calendar, when we cook a turkey and do whatever it is that we do, ham... I don't know. <laughs> Whatever your preference is, I guess. When we move that direction to December 25th, and we get there, we sit down, and we celebrate Christmas, we wake up in the morning, we open gifts, and we do it, whatever it is that our personal family tradition is, we, do, we do, oftentimes don't reflect on the truth of the gospel that's contained, that's preached to us in verses 18 through 25. And it begins with creation, right? It even goes back beyond this origination um, in, in Matthew chapter 1. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where God creates man and he gives him purpose. He says, here is everything that I've created. Go and exercise dominion over it. 
created with this purpose to do what God has called us to do in order to bring us glory by reflecting His divine nature and having a relationship with Him. We've talked about this a lot, and, and maybe some of you are thinking, why are we talking about this again? Because we can't say it enough, because this is the fundamental, this is the basis of the truth of the gospel. And it is our sin that came about in Genesis chapter 3. If we are, if we are here this morning and we are human, then we are born into the sin of Adam that was committed in Genesis chapter 3, where he neglected what God had called him to do, neglected the purpose to bring him glory, neglected the ability that he had in his own person to exercise dominion, and therefore sin against God. We as people now are in Adam and we are in desperate need. We are sinners by nature, sinners by choice. Every day we choose something other than God. Every moment of every day we're choosing something other than God. And so our sin keeps us from this relationship that we can have with God. When God went with Adam in the garden, it was this uninhibited relationship. And now we as people are, are broken by sin and need a mediator. Jesus, fully God, fully man, can mediate that relationship between us and God. And so, this drives me back to our point when we were talking about Jesus' full humanity. We think about the gospel and we think about it just get washed up, get clean, get right, and you're good. And when we understand that Scripture is telling us that this is about something far more than just getting right and living, just doing whatever it is that you want to do. Human flourishing is not about getting whatever you want whenever you want it. It's not human flourishing. That's what the world tells us. The world tells us that, that to go out from here and to be successful is to get whatever you want whenever you want it. There are a handful of people in the world that can have whatever they want whenever they want. That is not flourishing. Human flourishing is a recovery, a recovery of the ability, a recovery of the ability to have right relationship with God and therefore, be given the righteousness of Jesus Christ in order that you might bring him glory and joyfully submit to all that he commands. And if we have that right relationship with God restored, then our right relationship with others will also be restored. Why do you think that Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands? He didn't just pop that off the top of his head to get his followers to get in line. The reason he said it was because he said it because that's what it looks like when right relationship with God is restored. If you love me, you keep my commands. The only way that you can keep his commands and love him is to have right relationship restored through him. No amount of human striving we cannot build the house by ourselves. Salvation is from the Lord. And so this drives us then, think about, think in yourself, just for a moment, what does your, your heart long for, right? This is, this is what it means that this is more than just getting right and moving on with your day-to-day, -day, right? I'm good, with, I'm good with God now, this relationship is, is okay, this sin is removed from me, and I'm washed, so it's okay. What does it mean then... That, that, that we have this right relationship with God restored. 
So the question that we have to ask ourselves all of the time is what does our heart long for? What does our heart long for? The question that I ask myself, what would make me really happy right now? What would make me really happy right now? If the answer is anything other than Jesus, if the answer is anything other than Jesus, then I would sin. We have to really ask that question, too. We don't get to walk out of here and just say, okay, that was a nice question, and then move on. Because for some of us right now, um, getting out of here, what our heart longs for is just getting out of here, getting out of this uncomfortable blue chair thing. It's to, it's to get our kids out there, feed them, get them down for a nap so we can chill. Or maybe it's to get it, take a nap yourself. Maybe it's to get a vacation. Or maybe it's to get a bigger house. Or maybe it's for people to respect you if you feel disrespected in your daily life. Maybe you just want to watch football. Maybe it's for people to think well of you. Maybe you want peace in your home. There's no peace in your home and you want to feel peace in your home. What would make you happy right now? Is it for your dead-end job to end? Is it for you to feel validated? Is it for you to feel financially stable? Is it for, for, for you to feel that you want to get your honey-do list taken care of and all your projects around the house? Is it for you to be able to, to, to make music or to sing or to go to a concert or go to a sports event? Well, well, maybe you think to yourself, no, it's none of those things and my heart does burn for Jesus. And then the next question is, then how ought should you live? Then live like it. We don't desire Jesus. Often, too often, far too often, we don't desire Jesus. We erect these idols in our lives. Getting out of the blue chair and moving on with our day is an idol. The, the heart is an idol factory. Every single thing that we desire more than Jesus Christ is an idol. It drives us to a place where we think we will be satisfied when, in reality, the only satisfaction that we can ever find is in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what we were created for. We've been systematically turning the church into, for so long, we've systematically turned the church and Christianity into this bastion of this is, a, this, is a, this is not a, a, a life-giving word. We turn the church into this bastion of good morals where we come and we just we look okay and we feel okay and everything looks externally to be okay when it's not. It's rotting because our heart desires something more than Jesus. And when that becomes the message of the church, then we exalt buildings, we exalt programs, we exalt Everything that the church was not designed to be, we exalt those things and we deny effectively the deity of Jesus Christ. We say, salvation is from us. Because I should be able to pursue what makes me happy. That makes me God. Instead of saying, like all of scripture says, salvation is from Lord. And then sin becomes this societal issue. And we say, oh, look at those people over there doing all of that garbage. Good thing we're not like them. We become Pharisees. Instead of realizing that it's sin that lurks in our own heart, it pulls us away from the truth of the gospel that we were created for a purpose and that in Jesus Christ we were restored. Sin is not a societal issue primarily. 
is a hard issue. So here's the final thought that I'll give you this morning as we consider what it means. Okay, so like we come together, we talk about community a lot, what that looks like. What does community look like? What does it mean to be together as the people of God regularly? Um, this is the thought. We stop looking for people to fulfill what only God can fulfill, right? We talk a lot about community. We don't talk about community because we believe that God, um, that we can be fulfilled by human relationship, right? We don't think that. We do believe that human relationship is an overflow of the fulfillment that we find in the relationship that has been restored with Jesus. Jesus has created this, has bridged this gap on our behalf. If he has come to earth fully God and fully man, mediated between God and us in order that we might spend eternity with God, the Father in heaven, and join him forever here on earth, bringing him glory by joyful submitting to all that he commands us. Human relationship cannot achieve that for us. None of us in this room can go before God and act as mediator. But Jesus Christ can. So we as a people then exist together because we believe that's an overflow of that understanding. We exist together because we know that we as people have been redeemed, that we have been bought, that we've been restored, that we've been changed, that a right relationship has been given to us, granted to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. No human relationship can fulfill us but human relationship can point us to a God that can fulfill us entirely. So this morning, as we go from here, as we consider Jesus' complete humanity, I pray that you see that Jesus came to earth to give us hope, to demonstrate to us um, that we as a people were broken, his sinlessness presented before God as a sacrifice, can make us right with God and re-achieve that purpose. And then Jesus' deity, as we consider what it means that Jesus is fully God, that salvation comes only from the Lord. That there is no other place that salvation can come. And that we together would live as those who continually point each other to that truth and love one another. Let's pray.